Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining today's webinar. I'm Elizabeth Kerr from Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation today. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. We're pleased to welcome Alex Tyndall Wiesendanger, the campaign coordinator at New York Renews, and Lou Daly, a senior policy analyst at Demos, for our call today. Uh, we're here to discuss New York's current clean energy goals and policies and what changes in Albany might mean for the Climate and Community Protection Act. And this will be an interactive briefing, so after um, Alex and Lou give their remarks, we're going to have time for questions. For those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across the country. And at these briefings, entrepreneurs, investors, small business owners, and executives all get the chance to brief policymakers on issues that affect their companies and talk about how Washington can work better with businesses to accelerate the economy. More than 600 mayors, governors, members of Congress, and senior administration officials have participated in our programming, and that's all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's largest and most respected companies and foundations. Before we get started, I need to cover a few housekeeping items. First, as part of the email confirmation you received registering for this event, it says Open Visual Interface. You can click on that link to view today's presentations. The slides are also available on our website at businessfwd.org. Just look for the post advertising this event. Uh, as I mentioned, there will be time for questions and comments, and you can participate in two ways. Um, you can press 1 at any time to be entered into the queue to ask your question live, or you can email us your question at info at businessfwd.org. Again, you can press 1 on your telephone keypad, and you can ask your question live, or you can email us at info at businessfwd.org, and I'll just read your question aloud for you. Um, so this, that, uh, also, this call's on the record. Uh, we do not have any reporters registered, but we will be recording the call and sharing it on our website after. Uh, that also means we'll be sharing it with you, and you should feel free to um, give this recording to anybody who was unable to participate today. Uh, with that, let's get started. Please welcome Alex and Lou. Thanks for having us. Hi, all. Uh, thanks for uh, being with us today. Um, so, Elizabeth, just to double check, are you, do I signal you for the, to move the slides? You sure do. Just let us know and we'll uh, just say next slide and we'll move on. So we'll probably start doing that right now. Okay. Um, again, great to be with you all. This is Lou Daly from Demos. Let's go right to that first slide. Uh, and just the very short version here of what uh, we mean when we say a just transition for New York State. Um, basically, what that means for us is uh, sort of twofold. First, establishing a pathway and, and acceleration towards zero emissions of greenhouse gases, in this case, statewide, and doing that as rapidly as possible within parameters of feasibility, technical and otherwise. That's sort of part one of a just transition. Part two is that the emissions pathway be economically generative and economically inclusive, um, particularly for communities of color who are the most impacted by the negative impacts of climate change. So in both of those dimensions, emissions reduction and job creation, obviously business plays an absolutely critical role. 
And so that's why we're really eager to work with Business Forward and New York State's business leaders uh, toward um, uh, winning on uh, the platform that we're going to be outlining to you today. So very briefly, uh, what is New York Renews? New York Renews is really a first of its kind and very strong coalition of, I think at this point, close to 150 uh, organizations across different sectors of our uh, economy and civic life, including environmental organizations, social justice organizations, uh, trade unions, and others. And a little bit of history. Um, I think it's fair to say the coalition grew out of two things. One is the First People's Climate March, um, which some of you may have participated in. Um, and also, I think the experience of uh, dealing with Superstorm Sandy and how that really had to bring people together across different sectors and different geographies to uh, work together cooperatively in the recovery process. Um, these are the basic pillars of what our coalition, New York Renews, is fighting for. Getting to a 100% renewable energy economy, zero emissions, um, and then making sure we support the communities that are most impacted by climate change and inequality as we go through this transition. Um, the second pillar is uh, a penalty, a fee, a pricing system on corporate polluters um, on the principle that of, of repairing the damage that they should pay to repair the damage to our health and well-being that's coming from climate change. Um, and I would add a third bullet here, which is that the revenue we generate through our greenhouse gas pricing and other sources of public revenue towards zero emissions, uh, a significant share of that be targeted for reinvestment in disadvantaged communities, communities that are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So as Elizabeth mentioned, uh, our kind of core piece of policy legislation that we're fighting for now is called the Climate and Community Protection Act. And the coalition really thanks Business Forward for the advocacy support and the brief that you've done in support of the CCPA. Um, we're really grateful for that. Um, so it's a bill that is well on its way toward passage. Alex will circle back to some of those questions a little bit later. But it's been, it was introduced in 2016, and it's passed in our state assembly three times, um, but blocked uh, by the Republican and IDC leadership in, uh, former leadership in, in the state Senate, um, despite uh, a majority of co-sponsorship. Um, the basic parameters of the CCPA are as follows. It puts us on a pathway toward 100% renewables by 2050, uh, and a first phase of that 50% renewables by 2030. So what it essentially does is codify into law our state's or uh, existing clean energy standard. Um, a second pillar is requiring 40% of state energy funding toward zero emissions um, should be targeted to benefit frontline communities, which 
by which we mean communities that are most vulnerable to and impacted by climate change. And then three, attached to all of the public dollars toward the emissions goals, um, we, we have high labor standards, supply chain standards, contracting standards um, connected with all of those dollars. Um, and then also that state agencies need to be very actively engaged in evaluating the climate and equity impacts of, of their decision making and investment choices. Uh, so six is really um, points in the direction of uh, the sort of the second part of our overall platform, which is the community, the Climate and Community Investment Act, which we are, uh, which is a, a, a larger bill that incorporates the principles of the CCPA, but then connects it to a dedicated funding mechanism, uh, namely a greenhouse gas and co-pollutant pricing system. Um, we could get into the details about sort of uh, the, the, the price pathway, um, but um, uh, more important, I think, is the, the potential revenue um, through our polluter penalty, which um, a study by the Political Economy Research Institute at UMass Amherst found that we would generate $7 billion annually over 10 years um, to jumpstart us toward uh, zero emissions. Let's go to the next slide. Um, so this is a little bit of a window. We start at $35 a ton of gr on greenhouse gases. Um, and again, that generates about $7 billion annually over the first 10 years. Uh, so um, the funding mechanism is at the heart of what, what I mentioned, the CCIA, Climate and Community Investment Act. So the process there is that corporate polluters pay a price for their greenhouse gas emissions and co-pollutants. And we start at 35 because that's equivalent to roughly the the official um, measure of the, the actual social cost of greenhouse gas pollution as measured by um, uh, the federal government. And then the outcomes from that revenue, um, we're talking about allocating uh, different shares of that revenue for clean energy investments, emissions reduction strategies, has the effect of incentivizing polluters to invest in clean energy. Um, and then obviously um, it results in emissions and co-pollutant reductions, particularly important in the most overburdened communities. As I mentioned, uh, a key aspect of a just transition is the, the economic transformation that it would, will entail. And at the heart of that, of course, is something near and dear to the hearts of business leaders, which is job creation. Um, and we've um, uh, worked with Perry to uh, develop a study. Perry, again, the Political Economy Research Institute at UMass, um, which found that by um, 2030, uh, investments toward um, a 50% reduction in emissions would generate between and support between 145,000 and 160,000 
new jobs. Um, and by even by 2050, um, as we're getting closer to our emissions goals, um, we're still talking about generating, supporting between 50,000 and 90,000 jobs in the final phase of, of the emissions pathway. And here is what is potentially the mix of different um, types of investment of that revenue and different types of job creation. Um, building retrofits are a big chunk of it. Solar energy, of course, is a big chunk of it on the renewable energy side. Wind energy, um, different aspects of efficiency. Um, electrifying public transportation is potentially a chunk of it, uh, as well as grid, grid upgrades for greater reliability and efficiency of our energy system. Um, one thing that the CCIA also does, in addition to providing a dedicated funding mechanism toward the emissions goals, is it, it creates a much more detailed and specified kind of spending design um, in terms of the allocation of the polluter pricing revenue. Um, a big chunk of it, I think it's 30% in our bill, is for what we call climate jobs and infrastructure. This is basically sort of larger scale renewable energy investment, um, sort of regional scale. Um, uh, you could think of, for example, um, expanding public transportation opportunities, um, electrifying public transportation in the bus systems in upstate cities that are currently less well served by public transportation could be a big chunk of the resource allocation under this bucket in our bill, the Climate Jobs and Infrastructure Plan. The Community Just Transition Fund, um, that's an allocation of 33% of the polluter penalty revenue. And what that means is 33% of the revenue going toward the most impacted communities and more on a community scale of investment, particularly in things like low-income energy efficiency and community-controlled or potentially community-owned distributed um, renewable energy systems. Our bill also has an allocation um, uh, of polluter penalty revenue to assist workers and communities through the transition toward 100% renewable energy. So it provides a package of benefits for workers who are directly impacted by the transition as well as communities um, who may be losing tax revenue and other, um, you know, other economic uh, aspects on, in, in the transitional phase as we move toward lower emissions. You know, I think we acknowledge that transitionally household costs, ratepayer costs, transportation costs, um, you know, potentially will um, rise. Um, there are different estimates of what the added costs will be, but probably something like in the range of two to five hundred dollars a year, depending on where you live in the state. Um, and this is, of course, transitional, transitionally, because at the end of the day, 
um, it's almost certain that energy costs will go down as we transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Um, and so to deal with that problem of transitional costs, we have a dedicated energy rebate fund that goes directly to um, households to help offset those transitionally higher costs where that is happening. Um, so that takes you through sort of who we are and what our platform is about and what we hope to achieve with it both on the emissions side and on the job creation side. I do want to say that, um, uh, just add that, you know, I think what's really important is with the jobs piece, uh, you know, on a net basis, we'll be creating more jobs by transitioning to lower emissions and 100% renewables. Um, so uh, what that means is a lot of new income in communities. And if the investment, the job creating investments are allocated toward the most needful communities, you know, that's where the job creation and the, and the, the new income um, becomes, you know, much more impactful. It's also important to realize that a lot of this income will flow to working class people. Um, an average of 69% of the jobs, both direct and indirect, um, in sectors such as bu building retrofits, solar power, and wind power, 69% of those jobs are held by people who did not attend college or have only some college. And approximately one-third of those jobs, these jobs in those sectors are held by people of color. Um, and as a whole, these jobs add up to about 55% of total employment in the clean energy transition. And the average annual comp compensation for these workers, again, working class, some college or no college, uh, average wage and benefits is about $72,000 a year. So if you take that number uh, and connect it to the jobs that will be created, that we project can be created by the, for example, the Community Just Transition Fund that I discussed, we project that job creation will add more than $700 million in working class income and benefits each year um, in, in the 15 most disadvantaged counties of New York State. 45, between 45 and 50% of these jobs actually come with healthcare and roughly 22% are unionized. So this only adds to the positive economic case for investing in climate solutions. So I think I would just underscore again, going back to the first slide that right alongside emissions reductions, the economic benefits of making polluters pay and reinvesting that revenue in places that need jobs and investment the most is really crystal clear. So I'll leave it at that and I'll turn it over to Alex to uh, talk about the political uh, challenges and opportunities in front of us right now. Uh, I'm going to try to keep things short so we have time for questions. The only thing I wanted to add is that the uh, energy rebates would be uh, not just for uh, middle and lower income New Yorkers, New York households, but also for small businesses. 
Um, so looking at the slide uh, where we are, we're just going to want to talk briefly about our path forward and the strategy to win. Next slide, please. And the two goals we have for the coming year are, one, to finally make the Climate and Community Protection Act law to pass it, and then, two, to introduce a finalized version of the Climate and Community Investment Act. This is will take some work, and we know we need it introduced so that we can start having deep and specific conversations, building the constituency for it to pass. Please. Now, in New York, weirdly, and some of you probably know this, and, and some of you don't because it's so odd, there are two ways to pass a bill. And I think on this slide, Elizabeth, you may have to click a couple times to get these to come in. But the first is that, weirdly enough, we actually do a lot of policy by including it in the state budget, which gets passed at the end of March. Or you can pass a bill the normal way that we think of passing a bill, where it's introduced in both houses of the legislature, it's passed by both and signed by the governor. Um, in either case, we are talking about uh, moving Governor Cuomo to take action on this, this bill and getting the leadership and the members of both the uh, Assembly and the Senate to take action. Now, there is this past year, if you'll go to the next slide, um, we've passed the CCPA three times through the Assembly. They've also put it in their budget proposal. And last year, this year, last session, we finally had majority support in the Senate. A majority of senators signed on as co-sponsors, but it didn't get a vote because Senate leadership, um, Senator John Flanagan from Long Island, refused to bring the vote the bill to the floor. So we, to do this, we need to move, uh, move those legislators forward. There is a very good chance that the leadership of the Senate will change next month. And that creates a real opportunity for us to finally move the CCPA through the legislature. So there's a couple ways that New York Renews generally is working on this. Next slide, please. The first is over the course of the fall, we're trying to have constituents meet with their legislators in district. I heard this from a legislator a while ago, that's why I put it on the slide, that no one in my district is talking about this. We know that's not true, but we need people in every district to go and meet with their legislator and say, we want you to pass this bill this year. Um, it's a great way to build a relationship with legislators and make sure you're getting their attention in the way that going to Albany can be hard. The second tactic we're doing as a coalition is what we call climate justice forums. These are local kind of public meetings, educational events, or opportunities to engage uh, decision makers all around the state. <clears throat> and then lastly, next slide, um, we're, we have several times in the new year where we're thinking about big statewide mobilizations. Uh, next slide. And that includes two things in January, we're going to have kind of direct state-of-the-state state response actions all around the state, as well as in Albany. And then on February 5th, mark your calendars, we're descending on Albany for a, a Climate Justice New York Renews Summit. Um, so folks, hundreds of people from all around the state. Now, next slide, please. Uh, business leaders are, of course, welcome to join any of those specific tactics. Um, but I think you also have a very specific voice. So. There are four ideas uh, that we think business leaders can really do to help move this important legislation forward. 
One is letters to the editor or op-eds in your local paper from your perspective of why for our economy we need to make this transition. We need to you know, set a clear goal and timeline so that we've set a clear signal to the market. We need to make a large-scale investment that businesses can depend on and therefore set their, their business plans. And that's what our uh, platform does. The second thing is having local businesses specifically meet with your elected representatives, not as part of a New Yorker News delegation, but on your own to make this case. The third is a statewide letter from business leaders. Uh, you all just did a wonderful for a thousand signatures and doing something more specifically about the CCPA that we could release kind of at the beginning of the legislative session, I think could be very, very powerful. And then if you want to speak at any of these climate justice forums, making the business case as well, I think those would be really powerful. We're targeting doing those in a number of places in New York City, Long Island, Albany, Syracuse, Buffalo, and potentially the Hudson Valley um, over the course of this fall. So next slide, it just says thanks, and we want to thank you for uh, your voice and for your effort. Uh, it's very, very valuable and certainly a key to us winning this campaign. And now we will stop for questions. Thank you. And as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, you can just press 1 on your keypad and I'll call on you live. Or you can email us questions at info at businessfwd.org. Um, we're going to start with a couple email questions while um, while the queue while the queue comes through. Um, this is a question from Linda Harrow in Poughkeepsie, and she's asking, "How are low-income communities disproportionately hurt by climate change, and what is the goal of um, what is the goal of policies to fix that exactly?" Lou, would you like to respond to that? Sure. Um, it's a great question and one that means a lot to us. Uh, well, I mean, low-income low communities tend to be have less resources to deal, for example, with um, superstorms and hurricanes. And so they suffer the most damage from that aspect of climate change and um, a sort of the least uh, resources in terms of people being able to recover. I'm actually just back from Houston uh, where we're, we're developing some partnerships with folks working in Houston on equitable hurricane recovery. So that's a very important principle um, that I think is really captured in our platform. I would also um, point out that our platform doesn't just focus on greenhouse gases, it focuses on co-pollutant, what's called co-pollutants as well, which are non-greenhouse gas pollutants that come from industry, come from landfills, come from waste transfer, um, and other aspects of our economy. And so um, low-income communities tend to be, um, are often much more proximate to the sources of those co-pollutants because of um, planning processes that are highly inequitable um, and, and often uh, racialized. Uh, and so in uh, intentionally incorporating co-pollutants into our pricing system, we're directly addressing the adverse health impacts that low-income communities experience in terms of the pollution of the fossil fuel economy. 
Um, thank you. Uh, so we have another question here um, about the job piece of this. This is Kenneth Lowry from Oswego. Um, he's asking, could you talk a little bit more about the specific types of jobs you expect the CCPA or the CPIA to boost? Sure. Um, it's really a really, really exciting picture. I think we've all seen the factoid that the fastest growing job sector right now in our economy is a wind, a wind farm technician, uh, for example. Um, but an analysis that we did of the job creation that will um, result from the Community Just Transition Fund aspect of our platform. This draws on national data. So if you're talking about the clean energy transition, 69% um, of the jobs, as I mentioned, in such areas as building retrofitting, other energy efficiency strategies, solar power, wind power, um, tend to be jobs that are quote unquote working class jobs, um, jobs for folks who did who either did not attend college or only have some college. So that will really give a boost um, to, to the U.S. working class and the New York State working class, and that's really important to us. Also notable that, again, this is national data, one-third of jobs in those sectors are held by people of color who uh, um, tend to have higher levels of unemployment. So again, the clean energy transition will have um, equity effects in terms of uh, the higher unemployment um, experienced by people of color, and that's also something that's very important to us. And just very quickly, uh, we find that the average annual comp compensation for the workers in those sectors that I mentioned, including benefits, is $72,000. So these are uh, very good middle-class jobs that will be generated and created through the kinds of investments we're talking about toward the zero emissions goal. Thanks. We have a live question now from Rob Richardson. Go ahead. Rob, your line should be public. Go ahead and ask your question. Please introduce yourself uh, with your business and where you're calling from as well. Uh, yes, my name is Rod Richardson. I'm the president of the Grace Richardson Fund. Uh, we're a, uh, a private foundation and think tank, uh, and we pioneer new free market policy solutions to critical issues that are in gridlock. And, um, you know, one of the, the issues uh, that clearly is in gridlock has been climate and the environment, uh, as evidenced by your, your efforts to pass uh, this legislation for so many years uh, that, that's been stymied. And, uh, you know, that's been not just the case in New York State, but in states all over the country and uh, in nationally and around the world. Uh, so I, I don't know if you... Uh, are aware of some of the new ideas that are coming out. I know you have a, uh, a program that you're dedicated to that, that uh, you know, you have uh, developed over uh, uh, several years ago and have been fighting for uh, dedication for many years, uh, you know, and I applaud you for that dedication. But <clears throat> one thing that I wanted to point out to you is that, and if you'd considered this, that there actually is a new opportunity for other strategies uh, as well on carbon pricing, uh, you know, that is driven by the fact that, you know, all these technologies uh, that we're trying to support here used to be unprofitable. 
So that meant that something like the carbon tax or the, the pollution fees that you're talking about were absolutely the only way to do it. Uh, so, you know, that that, that was uh, necessary. But now that they are actually profitable, uh, it is possible, and that's only, you know, within the, this decade, right? There's a new opportunity, which is to uh, flip carbon pricing around so that instead of it being at a penalty on polluters, it becomes immediately a tax cut reward on the profitable free enterprises, the solar power installers, the wind installers, the retrofitters. You cut their taxes immediately. Uh, you know, and, and you know, this, this paradigm is called uh, clean tax cuts, and it's only been around, uh, only a few policy wants know about it. But the idea is that you can, instead of going through this cycle where you raise up everybody's prices initially, you immediately lower everybody's prices uh, because all of those, the, the cutting the taxes on the clean energy uh, immediately uh, affects and targets that shift uh, to the good stuff. Uh, I'm wondering if you're aware of that, uh, that these new policy proposals, none of which are really in legislation yet, uh, but they've been worked on by groups like R Street Institute and American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. There's been work done on it at Yale. There's work starting on it at MIT. Are you aware of this new policy paradigm? So uh, this is Alex. Thank you so much. Uh, it was Robert. Is that correct? Did I get the name right? Uh, Rod, R-O-D. Rod, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I'll say something and then I'll, I'll let, uh, let Lou respond as well. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we are aware of, of some of that, and Lou is probably digging even deeper on it. I think that the idea, anything we can do to support uh, renewables is really beneficial. The other thing that I'll, I'll point out, though, about our program, which makes it different from the traditional carbon tax programs, is that this is really a program about investment, um, and the way that we think that investment should be funded is through a polluter fee. Um, but there are even other ways that we could do it to make the sort of transition we're talking about in a, in a fairly short amount of time. I mean, we're talking decades, but not a lot of decades. We need to make really significant and predictable investments in our economy and in our, in our state. And that's things like building out offshore wind on a, you know, at a utility scale in many cases. Um, as well as like really overbuilding on our transition lines and upgrading our power grids, the kind of work that, that we need to do has to be done on a really large scale. And that's why we think generating this kind of investment is really, really crucial. At the same time, we have to make sure that investment is being really focused on those low-income and frontline communities that have borne the brunt of the climate crisis and are, that are really being given the tools and investment to drive their own solutions. So I don't think it's an either or. I think that things that you know make and support renewables, like uh, clean energy tax cuts, is a, is a really useful tool in the toolbox. But I think that we also shouldn't take our eye off the ball in terms of the need for investment. Um, and that's, that's really the goal of the uh, polluter fee. Uh, Lou, do you want to add anything to that? No, I, I, I want to thank Rod for, the, for the, the point that he's making and the question. I think it's interesting to think about. It's sort of a, sort of a tax version or a tax mirror image of, uh, you know, another uh, similar approach, which would be to desubsidize uh, the fossil fuel economy and shift those subsidies 
uh, to get behind the advancement of renewables. So arguably the clean tax cuts is part, would be part of a larger set of those shifts of the, the sort of sub, uh, subsidies from fossil fuels to renewables um, to accelerate the emissions goal. So certainly interesting. I do want to underscore Alex's point that when you're generating positive revenue through the polluter penalty, that creates a situation where you have a more public control of the pathways of the transition and where the investment is being targeted. And I think that's really important, particularly from a standpoint of equity. Um, so a clean tax cut program doesn't quite give you the leverage and the decision-making power to target those resources in, 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 in the most equi equitable ways. And I think that would be a concern for us uh, if we were to replace the polluter penalty framework with a clean tax cuts framework. Thanks. We have time just for one more question, and this is from James Hawth Hawthorne in Plattsburgh, and he's asking, how do you think these policies will affect local energy prices both in the long and the short run? Sure. Thanks so much, James. It's a great question. Uh, this is Alex and Lugo will, will I'm sure, add on. Um, in the long run, we expect they, they will drive down local energy prices fairly significantly. In the short run, there may be some spikes, which is why we've devoted a lot of the investment to uh, rebates for small businesses and, uh, and households, ensuring that kind of folks on the bottom 60% of the you know, of the rung of the, the sort of the economic ladder um, either come out ahead or are made whole. Um, so we shouldn't, you know, we, we expect and we want to protect moderate income households and small businesses, and then we will, we expect to see significant energy savings as we move forward. Lou, anything you'd add? Just um, uh, one specific point, which is um, if a lot of the polluter penalty um, revenue is allocated toward um, energy efficiency, like residential energy efficiency, re weatherization, and retrofitting, um, um, which is something that we, we definitely prioritize in our platform, um, you're, you're generating, as Alex said, energy savings through that um, investment that can help offset any higher costs that may be entailed in the short run. Uh, great. Thank you. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, Alex and Lou. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, thanks to all of you on the call for taking time out of your schedule to join us. We know that you have businesses to run and that you are busy, so we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Please watch your email for a post-event survey that will include some recent um, survey and research reports from Business Forward on this and some similar clean energy topics. Uh, that'll also include a survey. We always want to know what you think of our calls and if you have any ideas on how to improve them. And finally, um, we'll have the recording of today's call that I mentioned earlier. So thanks again to Lou Daly and Alex Tyndall Wiesenkert. Sorry, Alex. Um, to, Alex <laughs> to Alex and Lou uh, for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to working with all of you again soon. Have a good afternoon.